everybody, and welcome back to Coffee and Comic Books. I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Rick. Hello. Um, and Rick, what have you been reading this week before we get to... Uh, I, this is a free episode. I should do a little more introduction, because we haven't done a free episode in a while. while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if people don't know, this is a, a, book, where, a book club podcast about comic books. Uh, you, you might be new here because we were doing Hunter Hunter in the in the paid feed for literal months. I've still got to epi- edit that last episode and put it up for tomorrow. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this is the first free one we've done in a little while. Um, uh, anyway, Rick, what have you been reading this week since our last episode? Uh, I read the complete uh, Tezuka's uh, Princess Knight this week. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> and, and this book is deeply about gender in all the ways that you could imagine Tezuka doing that. <laughs> uh, uh, and also like, it's also like 90% like, oh, there's some Maleficent in here. Like the prince is named Prince Charming. Oh, Tezuka loves Disney. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what year is that movie? Uh, Sleeping Beauty? Yeah. I want to say it's like 1954, something like that. Yeah, so this is 63. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she shows up and she's like, oh, oh I'm Madam Hell. <laughs> 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 and it's like King Satan. Yeah, it's a bunch of fun stuff. It's 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 Tessica's style, so it's like it's at <laughs> once a very fast-paced, very uh, ridiculous since it's like it jumps between like modes of like tones very quickly like all of his works do mm-hmm. but and also it just rose of versailles smashed together with sleeping beauty so it's like yeah sure it's fun <laughs> <laughs> you said it was like 700 pages or something right it's the this book is the complete it puts all things into one volume and it's 691 I guess it's about the same size as my big Dororo uh, collection. Yeah, it's it's like one, of, it's like that size. It's yeah. it's a, the Dororo one is a thick friend. <laughs> yeah, the, I like that one more. I think slightly, but this one's funny. Or <laughs> Dororo, I, I've said this a million times, but is absolutely my favorite Tezuka that I've read. I love Dororo. <clears throat> to like, so the to break down just how ridiculous this gets so the main character is born with both hearts a girl heart and a boy heart of course and immediately the physician has a lisp so starts yelling out it's a princess and everyone hears prince (laughs) my god so then they decide to raise her as a prince and then (laughs) she falls in love with a prince from her kingdom who then hates them when she's dressed as a yeah, it's all all that stuff, like all the way down. I the the doctor has a lisp, and so everybody's confused about the gender. It's really <laughs> that's really something. Yeah. Tezuka got a Tezuka, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, also, I double checked, and Sleeping Beauty was 1959, even. So it's an even quicker okay. turnaround than I initially made it sound like. <clears throat> Yeah, it's very much that. Oh, and then um, the the best part is, so Madame Hell wants the girl heart to give to her daughter, who is a tomboy. Oh, naturally. (laughs) And the daughter's like, nah, fuck. (laughs) And just betrays her the whole time. It's so good. That's pretty good. That's pretty fucking good. Um, 
I I'm probably gonna like. I think I've mentioned before, I've read one volume of Rosa Versailles, uh, and then I paused because I just decided to buy all five volumes. I have all five volumes, and now that they're doing it for GGP, I need to just commit and read Rosa Versailles. Uh, this sounds like a great thing to read after Rosa Versailles to just see, like, <laughs> you know, the kind of the, the source of this nonsense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what have you read? Um, so... I've been reading a bunch of different things, and I want to rip the Band-Aid off and talk about the most embarrassing thing first. Um, oh. We've been doing this podcast for about a year now, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And I reread The Killing Joke for like the third time in that year. I don't know why. I don't like The Killing Joke, but I did reread The Killing Joke this week. <laughs> um, I have nothing to say about it. Uh... Much like last time I read it, I read it with the original colors, and it makes it better, but it's still not good. It's just not very good. I like the last joke. Pretty okay. The The first scene of Batman visiting um, Joker in uh-huh. Arkham, and then the last scene of them just walking through the carnival, uh, both of those are pretty solid and made it like almost worth rereading. It's just that everything in between those two scenes is fucking awful. Yeah. Um, doesn't help that like the, the, like no one, well, I guess Brian Ballin likes that book. Yes. <laughs> Alan Moore does not like that book anymore. <laughs> no, no. And most people don't like that book for what it, reaped on yeah (laughs) yeah i like oracle is a really great character i love oracle um you can't really like like oracle is somebody trying to go back and fix the killing joke you can't really like credit the killing joke with giving us oracle in any way you know (laughs) um so that's that's one thing Next thing I wanted to talk about is the thing that I read the least of. Um, I read four issues, I think, of uh, Walt Simonson Thor last night, which I've read all these issues before. Um, I just kind of was thinking about Orion a little bit last week, and I was like, I should reread that Thor stuff. I My only thought about Thor, and maybe this will change as I get further in, but I think I might like Orion better now. I think that might be where I'm at. Was is liking Orion better than Walt Simonson Thor? Um, I think I like slightly prefer DC when it's more big mm-hmm. in general. I would agree, and that's with where that. Orion sits. Uh, like the thing that's been kind of the most fun about um, Simonson Thor to me is like the clash of how big and cosmic Thor gets versus like, you know, he just starts talking to Nick Fury and Nick Fury's a guy from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, I think I, I think like the widescreen, like huge splash pages stuff in Orion just worked a little better for me than Thor, which is weird going back to it, because you know, it's it's Simonson Thor. It's the greatest comic ever made. <laughs> um I do think that Beta Ray Bill is the best Simonson character, though. I do like Beta Ray Bill better than I like Orion, so there's that. <clears throat> um, other stuff. Um, what do I got here? 
Uh, I read a tiny little bit of the Kirby manga mania. I don't have anything to say about that except it's cute. I read a tiny little bit of Nana. I have, don't have anything to say about that because they're doing it on Ghost Divers. I read a tiny little bit of... Uh, I read a tiny little bit of Lee Ditko Spider-Man, and I also have been reading Kurt Busiek's Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Those are both good Spider-Man books. Very little to say about them. If you like Spider-Man... You're probably going to like these books, you know? Um, so the 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 other two big things that I wanted to talk about a little bit are... Do you remember how much X-Men had I read last time we did this podcast? Because I had actually gotten... I don't think I'd actually gotten through Dark Phoenix, and now I have. No. Um, Dark Phoenix hits different. <laughs> Yeah. I I kind of forgot how good Dark Phoenix is. I like <laughs> cried during Dark Phoenix. And there's also like it, there's like a bit of Dark Phoenix where it cuts away from the fight to like uh the Hellfire Club. First first of all, I started this because I was remembering the Hellfire Club storyline and that storyline fucking slams like I remembered it <laughs> being good. <laughs> Uh-huh. Wolverine gets kicked into that sewer and then kills the fuck out of some dudes. <laughs> um, but no, the the Dark Phoenix is really good. I cried at the ending, and I was also losing it because like midway through the first fight with Dark Phoenix, um, it cuts away to like the Hellfire Club is like getting in touch with Senator Kelly to tell him to bring back the Sentinel program. And it's like, oh my god. Claremont is doing the damn thing. <laughs> like, because, like, I'm pretty sure I'm three issues away from Days of Future Past. Um, so, which I also, with how little I remember Dark Phoenix, because it's been such a long time, I'm really excited to get into Days of Future Past next, because uh, that's the good shit. <laughs> um, also, it's just funny how Kitty Pride gets introduced kind of at the start of the Hellfire Club stuff, like, kind of before... Um, Dark Phoenix really kicks into high gear. Um, and then they just are like, okay, you don't have to worry about Kitty Pride for a little bit. You know her, we're going to bring her back in like seven issues, but don't worry about it for right now. <laughs> um, so. Star-crossed lovers in space that are doomed. Turns out it works. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I forgot, I forgot that the bit, I forgot that the ending of it is that like, Jean decides she needs to die. Well, I remembered that, but I forgot that it's like, so she brings all the people to have the big fight on the moon so that she can wear out the Phoenix Force to where it is weak enough to be killed. I forgot that aspect of it, of like the uh -huh. whole fight was like her plan to like, oh, man, Dark Phoenix. Um, It's fucking good. <laughs> um... Other stuff I read, where does my list go? Oh, um, oh yeah, last big thing I read, which I talked to you about, and then I was a little bit wrong. Um, so I started reading, um, partially inspired by City of Glass, the book we'll be talking about this time, and because you mentioned it on the last copy in comic books, I think. I reread Darwin Cook's adaptation of The Hunter, which is fucking uh -huh. amazing. 
And then I started the outfit. I have not finished the outfit, but I had told you over text that I had read the outfit before. And I'm like, I got like three pages into the outfit and I'm like, I definitely have not read this before. <laughs> so I've got some good. Is that fucking... the one that starts with him taking a new face? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The only thing, the only thing is I'm a little disappointed because now he doesn't look like Bruce Wayne anymore. <laughs> because <laughs> in the hunter it's extremely just uh bruce tim bruce wayne running around killing people <laughs> um yeah you, you really see how much they base bruce wayne on old detective novel guys yeah absolutely <laughs> um but yeah i rereading the hunter that's a fucking classic um you know i think we mentioned last week on this podcast maybe um if not last week, then I think I, I reread New Frontier since we've been doing this, I'm pretty th- sure. No, I talked about New Frontier on Gotham City Limits at one point. Anyway, New Frontier um, does not hit like it used to for me. I reread it, you know, at some point recently, and I didn't like New Frontier as much. But um, The Hunter hits even harder than it used to. I fucking loved The Hunter. Um and I don't think Darwin Car- Darwin Cook's art ever did better than The Hunter. I mean, we'll see. Maybe I'll, you know, get through the rest of these Richard Stark adaptations and be like, oh, no, it keeps getting better throughout the series. But this style is so perfect for him. Um, so, yeah, really enjoyed that. Really, really enjoyed that. Um, it kind of kind of ties into City of Glass a little bit. Kind of. Not, not like actually, <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, so City of Glass. Um, for people who don't know, City of Glass is the, the okay. I gotta I gotta ground myself in how I'm going to introduce this, and you might do a little uh-huh. better job of it. But I'll, I'll I'll start us off here. City of Glass is a novel by Paul Auster that was adapted uh, in the '90s. I want to say I should pull up the Wikipedia. Ninety four, yes. ninety four, by David Mazzucchelli and um, a number of other like critically acclaimed comics people of the time. Um, Paul Karasik is one of the writers on this. Um, Art Spiegelman and Bob Callahan were some of the editors, um, and it is a very like you know mid nineties prestige graphic novel type thing in the way that they just they don't make them like this anymore really uh i don't know that that's a bad thing it's just very of its time um uh-huh. and it's fucking great <laughs> uh-huh. uh yeah so i introduced this at uh at an elective at a college about comic books oh yeah you mentioned that and on the understanding comics yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was it was watchmen it was a book it was a book about canada it was um uh, Jimmy Corrigan, and it was this. This is... And reading it... There's so much Jimmy uh-huh. Corrigan in this book. There is so much Jimmy Corrigan in this book. Or or there is so much City of Glass and Jimmy Corrigan. I think that's the way the timeline works out. <laughs> and then I was reminded of this book in a, in a funny way because it, it pulls from the same, like, myth that um, Snow Crash does. Oh my god, it's Snow Crash! <laughs> You're and, totally right. This book is Snow and it came and and City of Glass by Paul Auster came out like two years before Snow Crash. Oh my god! So I, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Oh my god! When did uh, 
Paul, the New York trilogy, City of Glass, 1985. So yeah, the original novel is 1985. This graphic novel is 94. Um, you know, it's speaking of the understanding comics episode. I feel like, um, much as I do really enjoy understanding comics, I would almost give somebody this book and just have like so many of the ideas that get explained in understanding comics, you can just see get practiced in this book, you know? And I think that's, that's like... what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I realized reading it again, I'm like, oh, this is just... Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. This is everything. <laughs> well, I think, I think Mazzucchelli gets, like, a, um, a special thanks in, like, the back of understanding comics. Oh, like probably. It, it, certainly Art Spiegelman does. Like, this... These are the sorts of people who, um, you know, uh, uh, Scott McCloud is like talking to. Um, but yeah, this book is incredible. Also, you mentioned there Watchmen, that, <laughs> which is there was that quote. There was that quote I sent you about what people was talking about Mazza Kelly and Daredevil. <laughs> the quote is so good. Do you want to read it or should I? This is incredible. Uh, you can read it if you want. I, I think I, I just got it, but yeah, you can read it. Okay. So this is Spiegelman talking about Mazzucchelli on Daredevil. He says, Happily, it did not look like whoever it was that was doing Daredevil before that. Was that Gene Colan? Something like that. Which was really just illustrating and not thinking about what became really obvious in City of Glass, which is the anatomy of condomics rather than the anatomy of muscles. Fucking Frank Miller shot from <laughs> orbit. <laughs> I think that that's more of a shot at like, to, to me, it's a, it's so much a shot at like everyone who like complains about that stuff online. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like Thirty years later, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like, why isn't this on panel or why isn't it on model? It's like, go away. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. <laughs> but yeah, the funny part about where that's from too is this: this book is like so. The book is a mystery. With a lot of like overlapping and repeating motifs, a lot of them, and that extends backwards into the so Spiegelman got uh, Maz Kelly involved to do one of these things, mm -hmm. and then he got Krasik involved to, to like help figure out how to turn it into a comic mm -hmm. because it's it's a prose thing. And at the time he talked to Krasik, Krasik was teaching Pollister's son. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty good. <laughs> Which in this book is all about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The <laughs> okay, so we'll get into all the the different like postmodern layers to this as we go on. Um, I didn't really. It didn't fully click in my head that that. So midway through this, the main character Daniel Quinn meets a character named Paul Auster. And in my head, I'm like, oh, right, Paul Auster, the character of the novel. It wasn't until I put it down and was looking things up that it, like, fully sunk in that Paul Auster is the name of the novelist on top of being um, a name of a character in the novel, um, which, as a Kurt Vonnegut fan, I ate that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> This is a Kurt Vonnegut crime novel. It's made for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also for I forgot uh, the DQ thing until it showed up in the book again. And I was like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <Mother> <laughs> 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 I 
we'll get to that too. Uh, it's good. Um, but this book is so the way they they fi finally figured out how to tell the story is to like basically use the grid to show the the current mental state of the main character throughout the book mm -hmm. is how they describe it, and it's wonderful. It's. It's like nine panel grids all the way through. Like, I can't think of a single page that's not doing the nine panel grid um, other than, like, the, the last, like, five pages break it finally. Um, and, yeah, I think I texted you or I tweeted pretty early on that this just kicks the shit out of Watchmen because I was so amused at, like, you know, I've, I'm a big Watchmen fan. I don't want to sound like I'm not, but um, just the the everything that this book is doing with a nine panel grid just feels incredible. Like the way they figure this out is just mind bogglingly good. And it's, um, you know, to Spiegelman's point, it is like the anatomy of comics. It is like, um, it is, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the story itself is very postmodern, you know, Paul Oster, the novelist is a character in the novel. Um, but it's also, like, it's postmodern in the way that it is reflexive about how comics express meaning. Um, and it's fucking incredible. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the page that really signals the thing about the grid for me is actually page eight. Um, oh, yeah. Where the, the like, so. The, the top half of the, it's all, like, locked in and then it breaks down and then just it's just fluttering papers at the bottom. Yes. As it opens up. Yes. It's so good. Well, and, and the <laughs> by the time you get to page eight, the 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 imagery is so like kind of kind of surreal, kind of like, you know, like you mentioned, like rooted in his mental state. That when I was reading, already by page eight, it did not strike me in the moment of how weird this imagery is of the 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 papers falling down and blanketing the cover of the floor the floor i was like oh yeah that's this book you know that's just normal now um so uh the main character daniel quinn this guy's such a fuck up um uh, he writes <laughs> he writes detective novels under the name william wilson about a detective named max work i lost it at the name max work <laughs> It's a good name. It's a good name. <laughs> and his uh, wife and son died. Mm -hmm. So now all he has is his novels, and he is basically unknown because he writes under a pen name. Mm -hmm. So no one knows who he is, but everyone knows who his books are. Yeah. And then it gets a mysterious call, but not for him. For Paul Oster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... His detective persona decides to answer this call to, like, try to do it for real. But, like, the tragedy of this book is going to be that, like, if they had called a real detective, this probably would have sorted itself out pretty quick. But instead they called a writer who is, like... <laughs> Just trying to be a writer at them constantly. He's, like, trying to, like, weave a narrative and completely fails to do his job on every level. <laughs> um, and then, so he gets introduced to the the plot, I guess. Yeah. 
by this monologue by uh, Peter Stillman, which is was the thing that I believe cracked the whole story for when when I think it was Krasik who got who sketched this out, and then like, oh, this is how we're gonna do this, and then yeah, so. Do you want to explain how this is told? <laughs> First of all, I just want to say that um, I read this. I read this in like three or four little sittings because it's so dense that, like, you know, I think it rewards that sort of reading, even though it's pretty short. Uh, the other thing I want to say here is that I got to the the Peter Stillman monologue uh, the first time as the edible was hitting, uh, which made this a nightmare <laughs> to try to understand. <laughs> really glad I, I reread it. That it. It almost worked out better because rereading it the next day, I was like, okay, I've taken in the images. Now this time I'm going to take in the words. So yeah. Peter Stillman uh, is a man named after his father, Peter Stillman, um his fa- his father peter stillman uh was a sort of academic re- re- uh researching various uh religious ideas around language and the tower of babel and he becomes convinced that his 2-year-old son and i don't remember if the mother dies or if the mother just leaves um off the top of my head um but he becomes convinced that his 2-year-old son who does not know language really as yet, uh, if locked in a room and deprived of all human contact, will start to learn language and it will be, quote-unquote, God's language. Um, and so Peter Stillman, the son, is locked in a like New York apartment for until like the age of 9 or 10, I want to say, um, for mm-hmm. maybe even longer. It's rough. It's real fucking rough. Um, yeah. and we're, we're introduced to him. Um, he, he escapes when there's a fire in the building started by his father. Um, and when we meet him, he is, uh, out of the hospital now. Um, he is living with, uh, his wife, who is one of his nurses. Um, and he like, He's do I feel like he's doing the best he can uh in a when life has dealt him a bad hand. He is very uh he speaks in a very unconventional way, but he does get the meaning across as long as you're not taking an edible while he's speaking. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. and uh <clears throat> the finally so the reason he's calling Paul Auster the detective or the supposed detective um is that his father, um, Peter Stillman, is getting out of jail after 13 years, and two years ago had sent a threatening letter to his son, and so they want Paul Auster to um, protect uh, the son, Peter Stillman, uh, which Daniel Quinn is going to do a horrendously bad job of. <laughs> and also, th- this so this monologue is... Like mm-hmm. it's zooming in and zooming out of different things during the monologue. Yeah, like like the continuous talking is happening, but it's this. It's like the same shot of a mouth slowly getting closer and closer, and then it's a guy coming out on a boat. It's it's water. like it's like Karen like rowing the down the rivers of stick yeah. river sticks, you know. But what I noticed this time is so like it's nine panels of the boat, mm-hmm. and then a page of the guy coming out of the water and then a page going into his mouth. Yes. And then a page of the drawing on the ground. And, but then it's three of a grate, three of a sink, and then three of a 
gramophone, and then it's two and two and two, so it's speeding up. Oh yeah, and then on like the it's two birds. Yeah, and the last one it's all one one one. Yeah, yeah, and then it blows up into the thing. Yeah, yeah. into like the bars on the window. Uh, like the nine panel grid, the gutters are like the bars on the window um to peter stillman's room like his only like visibility to the outside as a child you know um this this two-page spread of the you know left page being um the bars on the window and the right page being like this marionette of peter stillman um uh laying in like a hole and just like a band like an abandoned pinocchio puppet sort of and then the speech bubble continues to like crawl out of his mouth because the other thing is that like, you know, normally comics characters have like a speech bubble that's like kind of coming out of their head. All of Stillman's speech bubbles come like from his esophagus and sort of snake their way across the page, um, yeah. which is, you know, fucking incredible. <laughs> um I, I I at one point this week watched a little YouTube video that. Anybody, if you just go on YouTube and search David Mazzucchelli, you can find this. Um, it's like 30 minutes of him speaking in front of a class about like his philosophy about creating comics. And he had a, there's like a really cool, this this speaking in front of a class thing is really cool because he's just like throwing ideas out there. He's like, the important thing about comics is that you just have lots of ideas and you can have ideas with anything. You know, you can do a normal speech bubble or you can do speech bubbles like this and speech bubbles like this. Um, and like... Watching that video and then coming back and rereading the Stillman monologue the next day, it was like, oh, like, you know, the, 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 it really unlocks like what the book is, is like Mazzucchelli is like, you know, coming up with new ideas on every single page to express the ideas. Um, it's just incredible stuff. So then we get um, his wife basically giving him, yeah, the, the thing, which is we need you to do something question mark. (laughs) (laughs) And then it gets, yeah, it gets to a bit where, um, so, so David, Daniel Quinn's invested because of father, it's fathers and sons. Yeah. Yeah. And he like wants to, like he gets invested because he kind of wants to protect, um, the young Peter Stillman in a way that uh, he couldn't protect his own son, you know? Oh, there's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. There's something I want to look up. Yeah. The other thing that happens here also is that Quinn sees himself as the detective Paul Auster, or perhaps the detective Max Work. Um, and there's a bit where Stillman is like, oh, you could sleep with my wife Virginia if you want. I don't really care. Um... And Virginia kisses Quinn on his way out the door. And so part of the reason Quinn gets invested in this, too, is he's like, oh, Virginia's going to be my new wife. Uh, And if that was a detect, if this was a a conventional detective novel, she's absolutely portrayed as like the femme fatale who's going to like sleep with him and it's going to get messy and complicated as feelings come into it. But that's not what this book is doing. It's but it it is what Daniel Quinn is convinced he's living through over the next hundred pages. He's like, oh, Virginia's gonna sleep with me any day now. It's gonna happen. <laughs> okay. It's just not. So I found the thing that's yeah very funny. If you go to fifty seven, okay. 
Did you see that um, issue of the New Yorker in the middle of the page? Oh, I was on 57 in the CBZ uh, New Yorker. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. there we go, there we go. Okay, so that issue, if you go back to where we were with when he's talking about like all the different kids who've been like raised by like wolves and stuff, oh. that issue of New Yorker has a, a story in it uh, that was also a coincidence that had a story in it about one of those kids. Oh my god. <laughs> but they didn't intend that? They just it, picked a random issue of the New Yorker to redo the color? No, so it was it was the one that was in Krasik's bathroom when he was doing that. Oh my god! <laughs> and it has a Humpty Dumpty on the cover, which uh, comes up later yes. also. Yes, yes. Um... <laughs> Man, the conversations with old Peter Stillman are so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so then Quinn goes to the library and takes out Peter Stillman's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it goes into like um, it wasn't like his drawings turn into like pentiment. <laughs> yeah, they do kind of. I was like, what is this font? And this font is going to end up being kind of how um, the older Peter Stillman speaks. Uh, but yeah, pentiment is what the font made me think of. And the drawing style itself, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because he's, he's talking about the, the Garden of Eden and how words used to mean ones or mul- oh, Yeah, they... words used to mean multiple things and they lost that when they... And then they mean one thing now. Yeah, and um, like to undo the fall the fall of language must be, un- the to undo the fall of man, the fall of language must be undone. If man could learn to speak the original language of innocence, he'd recover the state of innocence within. This is sort of like the governing philosophy of what the older Stillman is trying to do. You know. And there's a really good example in this book, which I didn't, like you don't think about this one, but um, he's like a broken umbrella like, it doesn't work as an umbrella anymore so what is it right um you're like damn stillman's kind of spitting he shouldn't have <laughs> he shouldn't have locked that kid up for 10 years that was kind of fucked up <laughs> yeah it's also good like he made up a guy to expose his theories so he could then steal from them and then mm-hmm. so that they sound more legitimate coming from some fake guy in history <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a lot of these ideas he ends up like he ends up attributing to John Milton. Uh, and I don't know fuck about Paradise Lost, so I can't really speak to this. But it is funny because I think Quinn is like he's totally wrong about who transcribed Milton, or, or like because it was like there's some weird detail where Stillman is like, oh, and then you know Milton's wife did all the transcribing for him, but Quinn is like, uh, I think it was his assistant that did the transcribing or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's um. Where is it? Uh, oh, there's a there's a name here. Uh, blind uh, Oh, Dark. John. It was something something Dark. Which Henry Dark. Oh, Henry, Henry Dark. dark. Yeah, yeah. Because the first Which initials the are Humpty Dumpty. Just made up. <laughs> yeah, he just made up. Yeah, yeah. HD. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the thing happened in this Mills book that is probably the best bit is he goes to the transition to see the Stillman get off the train and then there's two of them. Yeah. I'm really glad. So there's 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 a Stillman who is hunched over and sad and there's a Stillman who is carrying a briefcase and smoking a cigarette and ready to kill somebody. Uh he looks like a hitman and I'm really glad that he ends up following uh the old sad <laughs> Stillman. Um 
It's a good it's a good bit though, when he sees the two stillments, for sure. I think one of them called it uh one of the, in one of the interviews I read, they said like it that seems kinda like what happened with his comic where the book goes one way and the comic also goes a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because so much yeah. of um as as we get further into the book, like so much of what becomes really gratifying about it is the way in which like, you know, Krasik's, you know, like captions don't match up with like Mazzucchelli's images in any way. Like the two things are expressing co- totally opposite ideas or, you know, like the 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 caption is about one thing and the image is about another and the juxtaposition of the two things creates a new third idea that you can get from the panel, you know. This book is so good. This book is so fucking good. <laughs> I'm looking through it and like, you don't see a lot of Mazzucchelli in black and white also, and Jesus Christ. Yeah, the shading on this is just amazing. Like the, because there's very little, I don't want to say there's no gray tones, but if there are, there's very few. It is mostly like black and white, Um, which also just rattling around in my head right now is that this might have been coming out the same year as like a dame to kill for, you know, which is Miller doing black and white, no gray tones. And it's such a different 94 is like, should be Sin City. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, might have some similar ideas. Those two, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I've never read any Sin City. Um, it's fun to look at. Uh, I, I, there, from what I've heard, I might check out like the first story or two, and then as soon as I feel like it uh-huh. gets bad, I might just be like, "Okay, we're done for that with that." Those are the really haunting thing throughout this book, which is the one drawing that it keeps repeating from page like three to the end, which is the drawing of the 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 the, the, the like pencil sketch of the kid screaming. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially which first shows up in a panel that says. Um, Everything becomes essence. The center of the book shifts is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The one that really gets to me <laughs> is on um, page 50 when um, the the train is oh, yeah, coming yeah. into the station and you see Quinn's face and then like the nine panel grid gets juxtaposed on its... Like the three panels at the bottom of the page have other inset panels that slowly transition Quinn's face into the drawing of the screaming child wanting to be let out. And there's like bars on this, uh, you know, sitting in front of um, the panels that make it feel like he's even more enclosed. And also the bars are kind of like the windows of the passing subway train. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That section of that page is what was put on the new cover. Yeah. So they like that one too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i was i was because we're the what we were reading is like the original printing there's a 2004 printing um that uh yeah that's where the 2004 cover comes from uh which is so fucking good it's so good yeah. I, I i have that one in my hands because that's the one i read first i i'm gonna open up amazon.com right now and see if i can uh try <laughs> i don't usually buy stuff from oh. amazon but for something that's out of not hard to find like this and maybe it is worth it. <clears throat> it's probably still in print. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Let's see. Um, we talk. We talk about the book while I Google this because there's also apparently a Cassandra Clare City of Glass novel in the Mortal Instruments series. 
So uh, Daniel Quinn just starts following Peter Stillman around while he does stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they just kind of walk, and it's funny. He starts. He has to start rewriting in a book so he doesn't overtake the old man walking because I, I've done this too where I just subconsciously walk too fast. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and Stillman being like an, a fragile old man <laughs> who's stopping to pick up trash all the time, he's especially... Yeah. <laughs> He's like cl- clumsily almost catching up to him. Well, and it's so, it's so funny because it's like this is not how a detective would do this. A detective would no. not just follow an old man around 24 hours a day. You know, maybe in a, in a in a Dashiell Hammett novel, maybe like, you know, the Continental Operative has one of his uh, one of his employees following an old man around twenty four hours a day, but they're also not just following closely behind him on the sidewalk, like always six feet away. <laughs> the way the coin is doing, uh, it's really funny. And then after two days, he starts drawing the patterns of where they walk. I lost it for this, especially because. <laughs> So you get the page where he's sketching out all the 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 routes that Stillman has taken, and it's you get O W E R O F B A B, and I stared at that for like a long time and was like, "What is the spelling?" And I I figured it out, <laughs> Tower of Babel, and then I flipped the page, and Quinn has the answer right there. <laughs> I didn't need to stare at it all that time. <laughs> Oh, a really good page turn reveal, because I feel like that's a little trap that Mazzucchelli laid for me. <laughs> it's me trying to solve the mystery myself. <laughs> hey, do you think um, uh, a, a noted a noted comics writer who likes symbol magic read this book? Oh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> you, r- real quick, very so, quick digression. I've never read Invisibles. Um <laughs> I was listening to a podcast yesterday where they talked briefly about the Invisibles. I didn't know about the thing where Grant Morrison asked everybody to jack off on Thanksgiving to save the book from getting canceled. That's bananas. <laughs> oh, have you not? There, there's a very, uh, I think it's still on YouTube. They gave a talk at um, a convention about chaos magic. And one of the things in there is literally, yeah, it's it's that. It's like, I believe one of their girlfriends was also like someone they claim was summoned with one of those rituals <laughs> out of the blue. Of course. Of course. Uh-huh. Uh, Morris, it's uh, so frustrating. It was weird. It's like one of those books that I'd like more if the art was more consistent throughout it. I think, um, who's the, I'm trying to think, who is the artist that comes on to that book a little bit later? Is it Paul Smith? Uh, or Phil Jimenez does the middle section. Um, I think, if I remember right, I was listening to Ajax, and they were like, oh, oh. Morrison attributes the book not getting canceled to everybody jacking off on Thanksgiving. And Phil Jimenez is like, well, yeah, I just came on the book after that, and everybody liked my art, so sales went up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it looks like he does. Uh, it looks like, like he does seventeen through nineteen, and then oh, yeah. volume two issues one through thirteen. So, <clears throat> yeah, 
And then uh, volume three is the one that's a bunch of different people. Ooh, you got some Sean Phillips. You got some Ashley Wood. Yeah. I, I like Sean Phillips. I got to read more of those Brie Raker Phillips comics. Um, I some his earlier stuff in like the UK is fun. Oh, I forgot he did some some uh, Hellblazer. I almost called Hellblazer Vertigo, <laughs> <laughs> which to uh, be fair, <laughs> kind of is. Yeah, someone walking around making symbols on the ground. Yeah. to cause something to happen. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Invisibles yeah. happens two years they, after this book. <laughs> yeah, and then they meet and they have a nice long chat. Uh, they have three long chats. Uh. And this is so fucking good. <laughs> yeah. The, the first one where it just starts rhyming with Quinn for like a page and a half is... <laughs> yeah. It rhymes with twin and gin and tin. And <laughs> he just keeps going and going. Also, he's like, Quinn, quintessence of quiddity, quick, for example, and quill, quack, quirk. <laughs> like, okay, thanks, buddy. And he reveals that he's inventing a new language. Yeah, no, no, nothing. Pro, no problem. No, no big deal. Um, it, he he reveals he's inventing a new language, and on the next page, you get the thing you mentioned earlier about the umbrella. I love how the umbrella looks like a spider in this drawing. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and also like <laughs> they they meet three times, but he doesn't rec- remember meeting him three times. I think Stillman's playing him. I think Stillman absolutely remembers and is like, I'm gonna fuck with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, it could be. Yeah, yeah. I think Stillman is like, who's this weird guy that's been following me for a few days? I'm just gonna tell him my theories about the universe. <laughs> um, it, it, but it, it could absolutely be like it's not a thing that matters. It's just what I choose to believe about. <laughs> um, about all this, he talks about Humpty Dumpty for a few pages. Yep. Um, the extremely realistic drawing of Humpty Dumpty is good. <laughs> This is like yeah, it's very good. I had a, I had a book as a kid with this like very detailed drawing of Humpty Dumpty. I absolutely can't remember what, but I'd seen. There probably is, it probably is from that from that exact thing. If I had to guess, yeah, because like this this book sometimes is like replicating like Renaissance paintings or stuff like that, and so uh-huh. I've seen this Humpty Dumpty somewhere in culture, you know, on my bookshelf when I was six years old, you know, something like that. Like this is a. This is the image of Humpty Dumpty in my mind, and so it was cool to see, you know, that Humpty Dumpty get deported into this. <clears throat> um, uh, and then their third Humpty meeting, Dumpty. he tells him he's Peter Stillman, and <laughs> Peter Stillman's like, that's not your name. That's my son's name. Also, it's my name. <laughs> um, and then they have a long talk about how this this one really hits hard. Yes, yes. They have a because you go. They they would talk like basically if he was it as if he was his son. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it it's it hits so hard because nowhere in here does the older Stillman like acknowledge or apologize for locking him in the room. He is still just talking about his work of creating the new language. You know. Um, and it just, it just hits, um, yeah. because it's all, a part of it's cause like, it's like gorgeous. Yeah. Magic Kelly illustrations of them sitting on a, su- watching a sunset. Yeah. Over looking New York. And then the rest, the other part is that like, he's still talking in this like biblical font. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, Quinn is like basically like forgiving him for his son, like in place of yeah, in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Um, <laughs> which once again, Quinn is such a beautiful fuck up throughout this. Yeah. <laughs> um. And then the next day, he, like, the next day he, like, walks into Frank Miller Daredevil because he's, like, trying to find <laughs> Stillman in the motel or the hotel that Stillman's been staying at. And the guy is, like, oh, I don't I don't have a register. You're, I don't know who you're talking about. And uh, what does he say? Um, he bribes the guy. <laughs> yeah. The, um, oh, okay. It was at the top of this page. I was looking at the bottom of this page. Don't recall anyone by that name. Uh, boss keeps it locked up in the back office, um, and he slides him a, a twenty. And the guy is like, "I'll look in the, I'll look in the office." And then he pulls up the newspaper he's been reading, and the register is right under the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> also, every newspaper uh, in this uh, book is about the Mets losing, <laughs> which is a great yes. little touch. <laughs> And there's we didn't talk about it, but there's like one page early on where um, Quinn is talking to some guy at a diner he knows, oh, yeah. and he's like, you know, they could put you and me out on that field, and we'd pay, play better than these guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of New York stuff. <laughs> um, and then he like basically begins to lose it. Yeah. He really f- starts to fucking lose it. This is when he goes and finds the r- the real question mark Paul Oster. <laughs> um, well, for, for, first he like he has a breakdown talking to uh, for or is her name? It's Veronica, right? I thought it was Virginia, but I could be wrong. Vir- yeah, it's Virginia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has to talk to her on the phone, and then while he's talking to her, it does the thing where it's been doing the whole book where the fingerprint turns into the maze and it goes, it zooms, it keeps going down and down and down into it. Yeah. And we saw it, we saw it happen in reverse earlier where there's like a maze and then you get closer and closer on the maze or farther and farther from the maze and it turns into a fingerprint. And now we go the opposite direction of the fingerprint turning into the labyrinth, turning into the locked door at the heart of the labyrinth. Um, well, where he has no ideas of what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> and he's telling her, like, oh, I know exactly how to catch Stillman. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> the fact was he had lied to her. He did not have several ideas. He did not even have one. <laughs> and then he's like, wait a second. They called, like, so many days ago asking for Paul Oster. What if I just go find Paul Oster? Yeah. <laughs> Which, luckily, there's only one Paul Oster in all of New York, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Paul Oster's there. <laughs> I love, I love. Um, you don't really notice like the 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 characters, the faces in this book are generally pretty like cartoony, pretty like you know white space, couple little lines for you know uh, facial features and stuff, and you but you don't even notice it because it fits the tone so well. And then this like photo of Paul Oster walks in. <laughs> Which I don't know if this looks like the real man Paul Oster or not. I would assume so, but I have no idea. <laughs> but he's got, like, lines on his forehead, and he's got individual beard hairs in a way that, like, no character in this book has. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Uh, Mazzucchelli talks about that, actually. Mm-hmm. He was trying very hard, like, because they got him to do this after uh, the Daredevil in the year one. Mm. And he was like, he was trying to find, like, the midpoint between being cartoony and being naturalistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he really nails it with, like, most, like, the people in this book. I think so, too. I absolutely think so. Um, this bit where um, Quinn and Oster are having a conversation and um, Quinn gets up to, or not Quinn, Oster gets up to answer the door and then you get this like perspective shot, like sitting first person in Quinn's eyes uh, as he's looking at like the a fisheye lens drawing of the room almost. It's just like warped around the edges. I don't know how Mazzucchelli does that without like 3D modeling everything out. That's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. That that panel's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Just the, the perspective of it, uh it, you know, this is like yeah, this is nineteen ninety four. He's not you know, hopping into Blender and putting this room together real quick. He's just drawing it as best he can. <laughs> He's probably, yeah. they probably took a photo of a living room somewhere and he kind of sketched that, but like, Jesus. <laughs> and then like the best, so they're, they're, they're having a long conversation here about, or it's after, after the first thing that happens is he just had a conversation with Pierce to want to go Humpty Dumpty. Mm-hmm. And then Oster's like, do you want an omelet? And then <laughs> Quinn came something about breaking eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> <laughs> and he's having trouble staying calm while eating the omelet. He's like sweating yeah. eating this fucking omelet. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're then they start talking about uh telling it windmills and uh Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere in here, Mazzucchelli Which... does the famous Don Quixote Picasso drawing too. Yeah, Don, the Quixote thing. Yeah, and and the thing that you don't, if you're reading it for the first time, you're like, oh yeah, Daniel Quinn. Motherfucker. <laughs> I didn't put that together until you said it just now. You mentioned the DQ <laughs> thing earlier, and I was like, oh, I'm yeah. sure we'll get to it. I did not put together Daniel Quinn, Don Quixote, until this moment. So, like, the, the, very, the very last bit with when all the things breaks down, mm-hmm. there's uh, the, the famous Don, the famous Coyote panel, and then the next panel is DQ with big DQ. <laughs> I'm like, God, you motherfuckers. <laughs> It's like, this book is so clever, but it doesn't feel, you know, I've been kind of mean to Grant Morrison, someone who I'm kind of a fan of, you know, All-Star Superman and Claws, at least, are really great books. Uh, But, like, when Grant Morrison's clever, it feels like I'm almost, like, condescending sometimes, and this book is just clever in a way of, like, we just had an idea, and, you know, (laughs) we put it on the page. (laughs) Uh, um, and yeah, they're they're basically just having a long conversation about translation and adaptation, which, given the context yes. of what this book is, <laughs> given the, also like yeah, yeah, the context of the book, and I I know I keep talking about this, but this is Dave Mazzucchelli drawing the real author. <laughs> Paul Auster having a conversation about what it means to translate and to adapt and and that like you know Don Quixote in fiction was translated from Arabic into Spanish um but there's no real world record of of an Arabic author of Don Quixote and so was Cervantes making that up or whatever um and like I think something that Auster says toward the end here uh is something along the lines of 
Uh, to Okay, to what extent would people tolerate blasphemes, lies, and nonsense if they gave them amusement? The answer to any extent, for the book is still amusing to us today, uh, which feels, it feels like it is looking at this book, and it's like, you know, where this book is filled with lies and, and nonsense, um, but it's amusing, it's, you know, entertaining, it's drawing you through the story, and that's what matters at the end of the day, almost. And also, like, it also ends with Oster having the same uh, wife and kid that yes. both Daniel Quinn and Peter Stillman had. Yes, yes. <laughs> and he's like, are you taunting me right now? Because <laughs> right after they show up, there's a panel where he's getting stabbed through the heart. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, right. And the other, yeah. the other uh, thing here is that um, Quinn doesn't think of this until, uh, like, the very end. Uh, but... Uh, all the checks have been made out to Paul Auster, so this Paul Auster is going to to cut it, is going to cash that check, and then you know Venmo <laughs> Quinn the money or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then he decides to do something really dumb. Yeah. So he he keeps calling mm-hmm. and the number and Virginia doesn't answer and it's always a bidding signal. And he takes that to mean, uh, I have to keep trying and not, I should stop. Yeah. And he also doesn't take that to mean, I should go into the part, I should, like, try to buzz myself into the apartment and check on them. This is, this is until, like, about ten pages from where we were at. But, like, the thing he decides to do is just sit outside and watch the apartment for three months. <laughs> There's also that page, uh, page 101, where he's just walking across the map of New York. Yeah, he just, <laughs> if I just walk all of New York, I'll find them eventually. Stupid, stupid man. <laughs> Love him. But it's, it's just, it, it's a drawing of him on top of the actual street map of New York. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And then um, he does a thing. So basically he just, he walks around for a couple of pages and he notices uh, the unhoused people that are either like playing music or like sitting on corners or wiping people's windows. Mm-hmm. And like, there's one bit where a, a guy's drumming on a trash can and the text is, um, perhaps if he stopped drumming, the city would fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. Just like little stories like that. And then he decides to basically do that himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> and the, he just sits on a, box in front of an apartment building for three months this this um page right before he decides to sit on the box he's like at a diner and he's kind of tapping along on his mug in the same rhythm uh as the uh unhoused guy and then there's a a shot of a phone booth where he tries to call the uh virginia's line again and then there's a shot of uh the phone booth on fire and i love the ambiguity (laughs) of is that like metaphorically you know the, the, the phone is on fire because something terrible has happened. Or did Quinn set that payphone on fire? Because I'd kind of believe either. <laughs> I think it's just, I, I see it as the burning bush from... Oh! Oh! It's a sign. It's yeah. a sign. <laughs> God, I'm really glad we're talking about this book because there's so much <laughs> stuff that I didn't even... I feel like I picked up on a million things and there's still stuff that I'm discovering about this book as we talk about it. 
yeah. and then also the panel where he I don't know how did he speed line the hell out of this what the fuck yeah so there's the drawing of Quinn sitting across the street watching the apartment building and then yeah like speed lines like warp time or and smudge. space and smudge yeah smudge smudge tool yeah like what is going <laughs> what are you doing Mads Kelly what's going on <laughs> it's also here that you get uh as he's starting to sit on the bench you get like you know typewriter typing out um the account of this period is less full than the author would have liked uh I'm gonna sneeze maybe not <laughs> Um, we cannot say for certain what happened to Quinn during this period, for it is at this point in the story that he began to lose his grip. And so it's like, oh my god, is this graphic novel all being reported to us by Paul Auster? And put a pin in that, we're gonna come back to it later. (laughs) Oh, uh, you you asked this question, uh, this is from 2013, um, from a panel... Uh, so that's Oster on the left. Okay. Mazzucchelli, Krasik, Spiegelman, and then uh, Bill Karteloff, who did the panel. I guess if he had a beard, I could sort of see um the the Oster and yeah, the younger novel. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's like that's 2013. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. did, every photo I've ever seen of Mazzucchelli, he's smiling. Good for him. <laughs> He's, yeah. He seems like he's just having a good time making comics and teaching these days. <laughs> and then, he, so he's sitting on this box going, well, if I leave to go get food, they're going to come out of the building, obviously. So I got to go get food at 3 o'clock to 4, 3.30 to 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> also, I'm not allowed to sleep for more than 30 minutes at a time. And so he's getting like four hours of sleep a day scattered across like 30 minute chunks. <laughs> Wake being woken up by church bells. <laughs> it's also the book kind of becomes here for a little bit in this section. It's kind of it's kind of been here all throughout, but like especially in this as we get the can you know time lapse panels of Quinn sitting on this box, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. I especially like and then, uh, page one eleven. There's the bit at the top of the page of him melting into the brick wall beside him. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. That's and there's that panel underneath that where it's just a building looking at the, the sky. Yeah. <laughs> and crying over Quinn. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Um, it's also funny because on the next page it mentions that he spent a lot of time watching the sky. And I'm like, okay, so you're sitting out here 24 hours a day to keep an eye on the door. But you spend half your time looking up at the sky? Yeah. <laughs> And then he's like, okay, oh it's been three months. I should have money in my post office again from this check. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go walk him to get it. And he's been sitting for three months. I did think at this point, he hasn't been paying rent, right? And uh, I'm immediately rewarded for having that thought. <laughs> <laughs> also, he looks like a younger, older Peter Stillman. Yes, yes. Because he's got the big beard and the the big hair now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the lines under his eyes like, and i can't tell for certain but when he walks through this forest on 116 it looks more storybooky than it did but when they were doing forest stuff before yeah totally totally it definitely looks more like abstract mm-hmm. and like a bit off kilter yeah absolutely 
And then he got calls Oster three months later, like, so where's my money? It's like, what? <laughs> this what, is... what money? Uh, the case. What case? <laughs> Oster tells him that Stillman jumped off, the older Stillman jumped off a bridge two and a half months ago. <laughs> Which you could take to read that after he had that third conversation with him, he talked to his son that he thought was his son, and he just jumped off a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Quinn, what are you doing, baby? <laughs> and then the, he calls Virginia back, and the number's been disconnected. And he goes home, and uh, <laughs> there's someone else living there who might be the girl from the train station. Um, it is. It is. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Quinn draws she's, attention. She's earlier on, who was reading his book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Quinn even draws really attention good. to it. It's like, is the girl who was living in my apartment the girl I saw at the train station? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, God. Uh, and then so he decides to finally, after however long, I should go into the building. <laughs> Why didn't you try this three months ago? <laughs> oh, there's a one twenty four is so good. It's it actually is. Yeah. Is that the pan? Is that is that the shot from the Twin Peaks photo on her bedroom wall? It's almost that, right? Uh, maybe, yeah. The firewalk. Yeah, one? it might be that painting. Yeah, I think it uh, is. That, that that looks like it. Yeah, it really fucking does. Holy shit. In a weird, like, off-center... Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Oh. Not not exactly, but yeah, really close. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of that a lot. Um, and then he decides to just hang out in this building. And he strips off all his clothes for, like, the fourth time in this book, by the way. Yeah. And he just lays on the floor, and periodically very fancy meals are delivered to him, and he never thinks to ask, where are these meals coming from? <laughs> yeah. Um... Oh, here's the drawing of of uh, yeah, Don Quixote. Quixote. Okay, I was wondering why I couldn't find it earlier. And the next panel is the DQ. Yeah, yeah. Like, God. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the next panel was, was the girl in the apartment the same as the girl from Grand <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then he just, everything just breaks. Yeah, the, the nine panel yeah. grid, like all the, the pages are falling, kind of like we saw in the really early page of the, the four... Uh, conjoined yeah. panels. Um, and he just wrote and wrote and wrote until there was no pages left. Um, and then we find out who the sort of we find out who's been the author of the typewriter sections, and it's a writer friend of Oster who is very disappointed <laughs> that Oster did not do a better job of taking care of uh Quinn. And so he's, like, trying to write this story to understand Quinn. He's he's doing the Daniel Quinn process on Daniel Quinn. <laughs> yeah. And it, it I love that this, the style changes to, like, this, mm -hmm. like, uh, wash color, like, no, no clear grids. Yeah, like, there's, a, like, one of these pages has, like, a pretty big panel at the top, and then two unevenly sized and spaced middle panels, and then, like, a slightly smaller panel across the bottom, um, there, there, there's no nine panel grid anymore because it's a different writer, you know? <laughs> um, I do think about the line at the end of uh, Quinn's section of this book where it's just what will happen 
when there are no more pages in the notebook. Uh, which is, you know, what's going to happen when I finish the book. I'm, I'm three pages from the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And then the, the, uh-huh. the last the last line of the book is the typewriter author, who once again is not Paul Auster, <laughs> writing on a notebook page uh, wherever he, meaning Quinn, may be, uh, may have disappeared to, I wish him luck. Uh, and then there's like a fire and there's like a Humpty Dumpty and All a crucifix. The from the... Yeah, there's like the crying child. There's the phone. Oh yeah, there's the phone. The, actually, that, that that's one of my favorite, The one of my favorite bits is page one because it's um yeah it's a zero on the phone mm-hmm. that turns into a drawing of a phone on a page which is a that turns into a phone sitting on a page of a book with a phone on the page of a book yeah the 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 phone that you think you're <laughs> seeing at first is actually a phone on the cover of the yellow pages <laughs> yeah with a phone sitting on top of it <laughs> um i didn't notice this last page also has the umbrella in the fire um, oh yeah yeah it's pretty good pretty good um yeah gotta crack some eggs for people who are wondering this book is about 50 bucks on amazon but i might see if i could hunt it down on ebay or something oh, it's actually wow yeah um let's see yeah 55 for a paperback from 2004 but i might do some hunting i i spent way too much money on comics last night so i'm not going to do that hunting right now but you know <laughs> uh, i uh yeah. i uh may have reread the hunter and then the next day i saw um uh all an idw all of richard stark's parker uh and just picked it up uh without even checking the price tag the price tag was like 75 bucks shouldn't have done that <laughs> should not have done that <laughs> but also it is a big beautiful printing and i'm glad to have it so whatever yeah. Um, I'd, <laughs> I just love detective stories. I love crime novels. I love detective stories. And um, this isn't even that much of a detective story, which is the best part. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It kind of tricks it is, you. But it, it, it is, but it's like around the edges. Yeah. <laughs> um, or it's like the character in the book thinks it's more of a story than everyone else in the book at the same time. <laughs> and it feels very like, you know, like, <clears throat> um, if you go read like Raymond Chandler, one of the classic detective novel guys, um, like, oh, I just found a fifteen dollar copy of this book. Um, sorry, <laughs> um, uh, I should not buy that right now, but I will bookmark it for later. Anyway, um, like Raymond Chandler is already like very reflexive about what detective novels are and how they function and the characters that move through them. Um, you know. Speaking to, you know, Donald Westlake slash, you know, Donald Westlake is writing those books as Richard Stark because Donald Westlake wanted a new name that sounded as like a cold, hard killer the way that Parker is a cold, hard killer, you know? (laughs) Um, Max Work and uh, whatever the other name is. Yeah, Yeah. William Wilson. Um, 
Yeah. Like this, this <laughs> alliteration, this sort of like reflexiveness about what literature is and what genre is, is very much baked into detective novels, like going back like mm-hmm. a long ways. Um, and so this book was just really fully leaning into it with a guy who writes detective novels, failing to be a character in a detective novel is such a brilliant fucking idea. You know, <laughs> uh, I got something to show you that I just found. Please do. That's sick. Uh, so these are uh, Krasik's pages for what this thing looked like. Oh, wow. These are all on legal pads. <laughs> yeah. And then, so I'm su- as a direct comparison. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised how close these character it- designs are to the actual finished pages. Oh, my God. So are these, like, are these... Um, the this white I think those page. are Kelly from that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so Krasik's drawing like on yellow, just drawing like thumbnails on legal paper that Mazzucchelli is then doing like thumbnails of on real storyboard paper. Um, that they're then, you know, this is getting translated into the actual novel. I see a couple little notes here and there. Um, yeah. There's some other ones that are like some un- <laughs> there's, uh, included pages. There's a handwritten note here. Get David copy of New Yorker cover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That was the one in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, here's some pages that weren't in the book that were drawn, though. Um. Oh, wow. These are good-ass pages. Or they're like different versions of pages that are in the book. Yeah. Like, this is not really how Quinn is drawn. I do... <laughs> Okay, so there's like three or four times that Quinn strips naked over the course of this book. And it's not until we've seen him, like... Like, you don't see his dick until, like, the last time, really, when he's, like, been uh-huh. homeless for three months. Uh, and so I'm really glad that one of one of the things that got changed early on is that we did see Quinn's dick very early in the book, this original draft. And I'm like, no, we have to save Quinn's dick for later. <laughs> well... That one specifically is uh, this. It turned that that bottom one turns into this in the final book, right? So the whole detective thing came in later. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Like him seeing himself as the detective. This also is not like as as strictly nine panel grid. These early. Uh... Oh yeah, they wanted to do something way more, way more compact, and then they're like, "Oh, this is going to be a nightmare. No one can read this." yeah because there's like there is like this look you have to be a true sicko to want to do 16 panel grids (laughs) yeah i guess it would hi hi returns how are you today (laughs) i guess this would be so yeah i guess this page the this original draft where you could see quinn's It's a 16 panel grid where like the top panel is taking up four and then there's uh-huh. there's two, two, and two, and two, two and two and two across in three layers. So you would have to fit like the three tiers into where there would normally be two tiers on the 16 panel grid. <laughs> Jesus. <Yep. laughs> uh, yeah, you could leave this shit for David Aja. You know, that guy can. <laughs> you just leave, you, you leave it for Frank Miller in 86. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, That's one of the was wild things. If you have read Dark Knight Returns and don't know it's all, it's entirely four by four grids. You should go back and read Dark Knight Returns, knowing that it's wild. I think, 
I don't think I've read Dark Knight Returns since I was like 16, and I was certainly not thinking about layouts of books back then, so I, I probably should. Oh, it's... Um, oh, where's the good... Uh, uh, talk of uh, Dark Knight Has, David Aja has barely done anything since... Um, uh, uh, Hawkeye, it looks like. Um, which I guess... I don't know what the royalty checks on that are like. He did do, it looks like David Aja did uh, The Seeds with Anna Senti. Um, he's done four issues, and the series was postponed indefinitely after issue two. I don't know what that means. Um, I might have to track that down, just out of curiosity. Oh, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, it's a 16-panel grid, but, like, this page you sent me... There's like other panels extending off the page of like the clear oh, yeah, blue yeah, yeah. sky. He's playing with it all the time. Yeah, um, man. Here's another one that's. <laughs> here's another. This one is always the one I think of because this one is wild. So, um, oh, because is... it doesn't give it away until you see that the fact that the dialogue caption and, and the faces are each uh, one of the panels on the grid and they're equally sized. <laughs> Like, God damn you. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. Frank is just the greatest to ever do it. I hate that that's true, but it's true. <laughs> that's just the official stance of this podcast, where we can't go a week without talking about Frank Miller. <laughs> well, to be fair, we're talking about a damn Mazzucchelli comic, yes. so that, that's going to happen. Yeah, it, it, it's natural. <laughs> Mazzucchelli has done far fewer comics than Miller has. Like I say, it seems like he and mostly spends his time teaching these days. But it seems like he enjoys it from the very little bit of, about his life I can find online, which, you know, is not really my business anyway. <laughs> his 2009 book that came out the same year as that uh, volume of uh, here, or around that time, about art is fun to read, but I, like, it's just, it's it's like fun exercise more than anything else. It's like a very understanding comics kind of book. Mm-hmm. A stereos polyp, it looks like. Which I think we mentioned on the last yeah. thing. is like, oh, I should check that out. Uh, yeah, like, it, it does stuff like this all the time. Like, it's like very, um... Um, of course I realize that things aren't so black and white, that in actuality possibilities exist along a continuum between the extremes. And it's this old guy talking and... He starts all done in black and white and then ends just drawn in like complete solid color silhouette <laughs> of purple. So it's basically just David Malice Kelly's color theory comic book. Yeah, okay. A lot of ways. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, oh, it's all drawn like that. I think, all you, the way I think you, maybe you sent me this page before of him talking to uh, the woman who's like initially shaded in red and then becomes a black and white figure. Um, I think I've seen this page before, maybe. Um, yeah. uh, do we did Mazza Kelly do all the lettering on uh uh City of Glass? I don't remember seeing uh, a lettering credit, so I assume it would just have to be him. Adapted by uh, there's no other names, so it's one of the two of them. Yeah. I yeah, it could totally be uh Paul Karazic. Um I guess it could be Art Spiegelman for all I know, or Bob Callahan, but I would I would assume it's Krasik or uh Mazza Kelly. <clears throat> yeah. Um also, I good at comics. <laughs> I love David Mazzucchelli. Uh, on the um, on the back cover book sleeve, 
Um, it says, David Mayes Kelly's own stories appear in his award-winning uh, Rubber Blanket Comics magazine. I love, uh, I think on the back cover of the book itself, there is a <laughs> David Mazzucchelli, parentheses, Batman, comma, Daredevil. But in the book, it's like, we're not acknowledging <laughs> that. This is not for the Batman Daredevil audience. This is for the mouse audience. <laughs> well, here, he, he, uh, the what? Author talked uh, when uh, Spiegelman talks about um, Mazzucchelli in this, he, his line about his previous work in superhero comics was I listed Dave Mazzucchelli, whose art on Frank Miller's Batman Year One had shown a grace, economy, and understanding of the form that made the superhero genre almost interesting. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I love this image we're we're getting of uh, cranky old grandpa Art Spiegelman. <laughs> yeah. Um. I should read. I, I haven't read Mouse. It's I probably read like Mouse and Dark Knight Returns in the same summer when I was like fifteen or sixteen, and have not revisited either of them since. I should. Oh, I was thinking about doing that when we did here earlier and then you kind of like pointed me toward like the original like raw versions of mouse that i maybe wanted to track down before i reread oh, graphic yeah, yeah. novel mouse uh i don't want to buy any of those but i'm looking at pages of born again our session right now and goddamn. oh man i was i was trying to just find like a cbz of some like year one artist edition uh born again artist edition and i was having trouble but um i think my local comics store did have there was some daredevil artist edition and so it would probably either be the man without fear or born again i would assume um which i like the man without fear but it's no born again (laughs) no that's a romita jr one right i think so i'm pretty sure yeah yeah the the black costume yeah i'm it's weird. I uh, I know that Ramita Jr. is like one of the most beloved Marvel artists. I basically only know him for Man Without Fear and then the Anne Nascenti Daredevil stuff. Like, I have not read a ton of John Ramita Jr. books. Um, uh, he shows up in X-Men, too, before Daredevil. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I probably would have read that He's stuff. It's like one of the ones that in the era directly after... Uh, it's like Burn Burnley's. and then Paul Smith and then Ramita Jr. Is that it? Why is it? Why are they thinking? Uh, yeah, and then Smith? and Winter Smith in there too, doing uh, Life, Death, and Body Shop. Mm. Uh, oh, <laughs> that reminded me of something. Um, I was flipping through all the like Marvel Masterworks um, uh, editions of these X Men comics. It's really funny because I think um, it's either the Dark Phoenix one or the next one has an introduction from Louise Simonson. And it's really funny how much better Louise Simonson is at remembering this era and having something interesting to say than Chris Claremont has been. (laughs) All of Chris Claremont's (laughs) forwards are just like, I really loved working with this artist on this story. And oh my God, could you believe this artist, the work he did? And Louise Simonson is actually telling you like, okay, so then Claremont sent me these scripts and, you know, I just thought they were perfect. And I was so nervous as a young editor and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, thank you, Louise for actually having interesting information about the most important comics of the 80s. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I guess that does it for this week. Um, uh-huh. 
we could in theory do metal gear solid next week but i might vote in we have a we have uh two weeks from now scheduled invitation uh what's it called invitation for a crab uh invitation to a crab invitation from a crab an invitation from a crab. From a crab. Okay, I got there. Yeah, we uh, scheduled that out. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, Casey, also known as Monofsky Article, on Twitter about that. Um, and that'll be... We'll record that in two weeks from now. So I think we should probably just do Metal Gear Solid, like, midway through December. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so, yeah. Uh, if people don't know... Um, let me pull up a little information about invitation from a crab real quick. This is a like. It's by yeah. uh, Panpaya, mm-hmm. and it's a, just a uh, collection of short stories. It's from Denpa. Yeah, you can get it digitally for seven ninety nine paperback. It's online places. Listen, I know that on this on this podcast we're usually pretty cavalier about pirating books. Um, people should buy Invitation from a Crab. It is done by like a very underground indie like mangaka, um, and it's it's eight bucks. Like people should, oh, people should probably just buy this one. I feel like <laughs> I don't know if this will still be up the time this episode comes out, but there is currently on itch uh, a comics for uh, Gaza's children. Oh yes, I should edit in something about the epi- on the episode I'm putting up uh, today uh, or tomorrow. That is a bundle for like a hundred. It's like a hundred. It's a lot of small press comics for like 10 bucks for a really good cause. Um, Flying Saucer Video uh, by Cam Marshall, uh, who did the artwork for this podcast, uh, is in there, I noticed. I didn't I didn't see anything else from Cam, but Flying Saucer Video is really fucking good. I have not, I have not read anything else from that bundle, so I'm going to be picking up that bundle this week uh, because I just want to like get put on to some of these underground comics artists that I don't know anything about, you know? Um, yeah. <clears throat> And yeah, I think I'll I think I'll record a little clip uh to to put out in the feed of letting people know about this because I people should donate, you know. Um uh yeah. Yeah. I I uh, I, I wanted to start talking and uh, more about it and then I just kind of got sad thinking about, you know, the news and I don't uh-huh. <laughs> I just got sad. There's nothing else to it. Yeah. Um and of course, I open up itch, and I get the new Terry Cavanaugh game. There's a new Carrie Cavanaugh game. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will. I will find this bundle and link it in the description. And yeah, um. back to the free feed. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I. I um, I assume. Invitation from a crab will also be in the free feed. Metal Gear Solid will also be in the free feed, and then we can figure it out from there. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. We have another thing on the books, even after another guest episode uh, in the works after Metal Gear Solid. So, um, oh, oh, and also, Drawn hmm. and Corley's doing Legend of Camoey. So, fuck, we didn't talk about whenever, whenever, uh, whenever Legend of Camoey comes out, we're doing that for this fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt um it's i think they said it's 10 volumes and it's starting in fall 2024 so maybe like you know we might wait for yeah, like we'll two s- or three volumes to come out but like we're we're 
covering Kamui Den on this fucking podcast. Don't you worry, friends. <laughs> um, exciting time to be reading comics. <laughs> exciting time to care about uh, manga that usually only gets translated into French. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I was thinking about about there's um. So so that that book, if people aren't aware, is um, the book that launched the magazine Garo and is a book that is basically a samurai comic infused with the the artist's uh, the Marxist learning he got from his dad and his dad's mentor. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have and I I have thumbed yeah, through yeah. it to look at fight scenes um but I would love to know what the story of that is cuz I just know that there are like marxist politics not what the politics are but the fight scenes so holy yeah, shit yeah yeah the fight scenes are great <laughs> uh the wikipedia page led me to uh the, the book one of the books that his mentor got published for he was uh uh taken to police headquarters and then died of mysterious circumstances the next two days hmm, hmm. yeah uh-huh um, one of the books is called, it's called The Canary Boat. It's in English. And here's a paragraph from it. Uh, uh, oh, yes. You posted this on Twitter the other day. I'll tr- I'll try to, I'll read this because it's fascinating, it's, but. <laughs> you don't read it. It's fine. It's just, it's just about uh, two Russians and a Chinese guy show up at a Japanese canary boat and they go like, they start talking in very still to Japanese about how you are all strong. The people who make money are weak fight them <laughs> <laughs> and they're all like very rosy cheeked boisterous like oh it's great <laughs> yeah they they don't speak japanese that well and so what they say at the bottom here is proletariat is greatest if no proletariat no bread all die understand <laughs> <laughs> so good oh that's the good shit yeah so that's it. it's just samurai comics about that basically um yeah, which you know, we this is a pro samurai comics podcast. <laughs> oh, that this that that came up on the Golden Pawn episode with Nia, uh, because, um, oh, what's his? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Golden Paul and uh, uh Seiichi something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when he started working for uh, putting stories towards Garo. He was intimidated by the fact that his comics were not like rigorous. Nobody <laughs> thought they wouldn't get accepted. Um, very funny. Oh, that reminded me. It was very funny on Twitter yesterday. Um, I think pe- people saw Drawn and Quarterly as putting out uh, Kamui Den and started like tagging Brian. Brian- ryan holmberg in it and ryan holmberg just spent all day on twitter being like i know about this project i'm like doing some like consulting on it but i'm not really involved everybody please stop just assuming that i translate all the manga (laughs) (laughs) look he has a good track record i would be i absolutely would 100 percent trust whoever is translating it but i also you know sight unseen would would have just assumed that ryan holmberg is the only person who cared <laughs> enough to get this licensed <laughs> yeah and notably um they've been doing like garo stuff for like years but this is they haven't done Toronto stuff yet at all and this is the first one so i'm so curious yeah we will see if they do more after this um yeah uh but yeah I'm tr- that's good 
trying to think um there was one other thing i wanted to talk about and it's kind of slipping my mind it was it was kind of along the lines of like that bundle and just like comics news stuff that i wanted to make people aware of i don't remember it if i remember it next week i'll bring it up (laughs) cool um rick my friend where can people find you online um you can find me online at combat the rick v i just hit 80 issues of anime on that yeah you have project holy shit (laughs) yeah we're in like 86 and yeah um I I so deeply love thumbing through Animage every time you upload it. It's so good. Um, now we're in the era of Goku and Kenshiro. So, yeah, yeah, my know. fucking guys. Uh, <laughs> if people are in the Discord, <laughs> if people are in the Abnormal Mapping Discord, which you can find by going to abnormalmapping.com, um, one of our friends, Aiden, went to uh, the big anime manga convention uh, and just posted some massive fucking full color uh, editions of Fist of the North Star. Um, I am in- so infatuated with like 12 foot tall Kenshiro. <laughs> this book is huge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the colors look pretty good on it, so. Anyway, you can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at autumnal coffee. Um, the last two Hunter Hunter episodes I did, I did not do a very uh, thorough job with the co-host post like I usually do, but I'll, I've got more time today, um, so I will try to do that with our last, um, uh, uh, what's it called, Hunter Hunter episode. Um, welcome back to everybody who just hasn't heard us for months. Um, you should go listen to those Hunter Hunter episodes, especially the Chimera and episode, I feel like, is like one of the best episodes we've done, so... Um, yeah, really, really glad we read Hunter Hunter. Really glad to be doing a bunch of one-off things before whatever our next big series is. So, um, uh, and yeah, Ornate Stairwells is back from the strike. Um, we watched uh, we watched Perfect Blue pretty recently, um, classic of cinema, uh, and then we um, have now watched the 2005 remake of Juon. Uh, the Grudge, starring Sarah Michelle Geller, and we will be recording about that uh, sometime next week. You know, with the holiday, I don't actually know if we have a day picked out, but we will record next week. So that movie's good. That movie's stupid. <laughs> we have Black Friday next week. Yep. Um, I gotta buy an SSD for my Steam Deck, and so that is the only thing I'm looking forward <laughs> to for about Black Friday. <laughs> uh, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, everybody.